Hey, this is a 10. The tab's 13. You're two minutes late, dude. Ah, oh, come on. I couldn't find a place. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. I gotta get a new route. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. On this episode, the very first of our second season, we are talking about a kids movie turned cult classic, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, the movie came out in 1990, but the Turtles are very much a product of the 80s. The original comic book, the black and white small press comic book by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, was first published in 84. We first discovered it probably a couple years after that when we saw it in the comic book shop we used to go to as kids. And immediately we were just fascinated by it because it was so different. And not just like the, the content of the book, the black and white artwork, the crazy story, or the name. Even how, how weird was the title of this book when we first saw it? Yes. I know it's a household name now, but back then something called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was mysterious and crazy. But I also mean the, the, the book itself right? The cover, the paper it was printed on, it literally felt different than anything else we had seen. Yes, it felt artisanal in the truest sense of that word, almost more handmade than the commercialized Marvel and DC comics that we were used to. It really felt like something special. In 1987, the cartoon first aired, and this is definitely the image of the Ninja Turtles that most people are familiar with. The show first aired as a miniseries, then it continued on into like a full season regular show, and we liked it. It was fun, but it was way different than those original comics that we had discovered. It was sillier, much more kid-friendly. Gone was the the often kind of graphic violence of the comic books. And this is where, the cartoon is where, all the Ninja Turtles got their own signature color masks, right? They each got a different color associated with them. In the comic books, like we said, the book was black and white, but when you did occasionally catch a glimpse of the turtles in color, like on a cover or something, they were all wearing red. But you can't really sell toys, of four identical red Ninja Turtles. And as we have discussed here on the show before, cartoons in the 80s were often just 22-minute long toy commercials. (laughs) So they had to give them all sort of a distinct look. They did something very similar with the Ghostbusters. The real Ghostbusters cartoon, they gave the guys all their own unique colored jumpsuit and changed their hair colors to make them more unique. Egon, Harold Ramis got the crazy big blonde hairdo. They did the same kind of thing with the show and all of the changes that they made obviously paid off because it was with this show that the Turtles just exploded into mainstream popularity. In 1989, we got our first TMNT video games. We got a four-player arcade game that was fantastic. I I can't even imagine how many quarters we pumped into this machine at Aladdin's Castle. So much fun. And we also got a Nintendo game that Konami released under their Ultra Games label. We were so excited for this, and we finally got our hands on it, and it was... It was impossible. It was so hard. Like, old Nintendo games are known to be very hard, but there's a reason why. 
this one is especially notorious as a hard Nintendo game. And you and I, we beat our fair share of Nintendo tapes back in our day. But this one, it was, we couldn't, I don't think we got past the underwater stage with the seaweed that shocks you and all the bombs you have to defuse. Oh my gosh, I remember it. I'm actually getting chills thinking about it. Ugh, we couldn't beat it. We couldn't get very far, but it was still, we played it because it was still so much fun to just play as the Ninja Turtles. So in just a few years, TMNT had officially gone from this weird indie comic to a, a household name. There was TMNT everything. There was action figures, video games, as we said, serial. Uh, at some point, I don't remember if this was before or after the movie came out, we had those weird, delicious green hostess pudding pies. At some point, there's actually, there's an entire Wikipedia page you can check out devoted entirely to TMNT food tie-ins. <laughs> I love it. The whole thing was officially a pop culture phenomenon. So you would think that big movie studios would have been fighting over the chance to turn it into a movie, but nobody was. Nobody wanted to make this movie, and that is exactly why it has ended up being such a classic. No big studio, not Disney, Warner Brothers, whoever, would have given us this movie, the one that we got. And the only reason we got this movie is because it was an indie film without major studio oversight that was able to stay pretty true to the darker roots of the comics. Absolutely. In an interview with TheRinger.com, there's this great article. It's the oral history of this movie. Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, who worked with his dad on the amazing suits and puppets used in this movie, and the director, Steve Barron, talk about the tone of the movie and the reaction to it by Golden Harvest, the company that was bankrolling it. So Brian Henson says he, Steve, the director, wanted to bring a real story to what the audience would assume was just going to be goofy, and he has a dark sensibility, so the movie was going to be dark. Steve Barron says, when I showed them the film, they said, it's too dark. It's too dark. This is crazy. This is for kids. It's got to be colorful. It's got to be bright. I just dug my heels in. I think he was totally right to do so because the tone of this movie is, is perfect. It's a great blend of the darker, grittier comic books and the sillier stuff from the cartoons. But then again, we were like 15 when this came out. We loved it. It was perfect for us. Because it was darker than anyone would have expected it to be, including parents. There was actually a kind of a backlash against this movie that I kind of get. I've seen this movie a million times. This rewatch we just did for this episode of the show was my first time seeing it as a parent. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm thinking about walking out of that theater with a, a six-year-old and thinking to myself, my God, my kid just watched a man being crushed to death with a garbage truck. Spoiler alert for the end of the movie. And spent the last two hours hearing these these cartoon turtles that they love swearing. Cartoons aren't supposed to swear. What the hell kind of movie is this? Damn. 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 Ninja kick the damn rabbit. Damn. This technique to get darker, grittier, more realistic, it's a powerful one. And I think it explains the success of, for example, one of our beloved classics, Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, to some degree, and certainly the newer Nolan Batman movies. Sometimes I feel that people take this too far and it can start to backfire, but it can be a technique to take something cartoony and make it feel much more believable and realistic by bringing some of that grittiness and darkness to life. And I think that's the magic of this film. It connected with a much broader audience and a much more adult audience because it didn't pull punches. It didn't. It stayed pretty true to the, the spirit of the source material. Let's talk about the story behind it, the story behind the source material. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 
where they come from, both like in their actual creation in the real world and their fictional backstory. So this is from theweek.com. One night at Mirage Studios in November 83, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were hard at work on the latest chapter of their Fugitoid comic when Eastman, struck by some unknown inspiration, drew a masked, nunchuck-wielding, quote, ninja turtle. He showed it to Laird, and the two of them shared a laugh at the sheer goofiness of the premise. Pete drew a cooler one, remembers Eastman. Then, of course, I had to top his sketch, so I drew four of them standing in a dramatic pose, and he added the teenage mutant to the ninja turtle part. We were just pissing our pants that night, to be honest. This is the dumbest thing ever. They turned those dumb drawings into what I believe was supposed to be just a one-shot comic book. If you read the first issue of the comic book, it's very self-contained, but the whole thing was such a hit that they continued it. That first issue tells the story of Splinter, a rat, who was once the pet of a ninja master and finds himself in the sewers of New York City and comes across four baby turtles crawling through this glowing ooze. They all mutate, they become more humanoid and intelligent. Splinter names them after Renaissance painters from an old book that he found in the sewer. We have Leonardo, Raphael, Michelangelo, and Donatello. Splinter raises them as their father and teaches them the art of ninjutsu. Naturally. Yes, that is the rat's natural instinct when it encounters <laughs> another animal uh, in the wild. Teaches it ninjutsu. <laughs> uh, Splinter learned ninjutsu watching his master for many years from his little his little rat cage on the desk. So that's how they all came to be. And of course, they each of the each of the turtles has their own signature ninja weapon, right? Exactly. Donatello has his bow staff. Leonardo has his twin katana, or perhaps more correctly, ninja toe swords. Raphael has his sai, and Michelangelo has his nunchucks. Now, I was looking into the history of these weapons, and the ninja toe sword is thought to be a modern invention. It is notable for being straight rather than curved like a traditional katana, and it's a little bit shorter. So I think this is kind of fascinating to look at that and how this might be different than the historic ninja concept. The Japanese martial art of wielding the bow is bojitsu. The sai is a traditional Okinawan weapon that was probably derived from a farming tool, as many of these weapons were, though there actually are some older roots that have been traced back to India. Finally, the nunchaku are also likely derived from Okinawan farmers from a non-weapon flail implement for threshing rice. And it's just so neat to think that none of these weapons were actually authentically associated with historical ninjas and all, almost exclusively are modern inventions. This story taps into a couple of big pop culture trends in the 80s. There's the whole ninja thing, of course, but then we also have toxic waste, right? I feel like there was a big fascination back in the 80s with toxic waste. We see it here. It mutates the turtles, but I feel like we also saw it a lot as a recurring theme in a lot of like horror and sci-fi movies back then. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about the Toxic Avenger, which was incredibly disturbing and I think is part of the reason why I'm broken today. It scarred me. Uh, but there was a guy who became powerful from exposure to toxic waste. We also had Chud, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers, BAM, which was similar concept. And this really was a, a kind of a refrain in the 80s movies. There was a big fear about it. And I think I still have some angst about toxic waste to this day. Look, I'm not saying that toxic waste isn't a problem, but I feel like it was made out to be like it was going to be a much more pressing issue in our day-to-day -day lives than it actually ended up being. Uh, so there's that. But then, of course, like I said, there's the whole ninja thing. They were able to ride the wave of ninja mania that was just sweeping the U.S. in the 80s. We were crazy about ninjas. 
We really were. And for those of our listeners who were still teething in the 80s or not yet even born, it may be hard to grasp the importance of ninjutsu in martial arts throughout that time. A lot of the classic kung fu movies actually harken back to the 1930s, if you can imagine, but they really had their heyday in the 70s. The 80s, though, that's really when we saw the obsession with ninjas come to fruition. And I I really think that a lot of the stories can be traced back, at least in in the Western world, the American obsession with ninjas. It goes back to Ian Fleming's James Bond novel, You Only Live Twice. It debuted in 1964, and of course it pitted the British spy agent against a Japanese ninja force. Our most beloved ninja movies, though, include Anything and Everything with Shogasugi, and one of my favorites, 1981's Enter the Ninja, 1985's Pray for Death, and perhaps the best of all, sort of the peak ninja in my life, 1983's Revenge of the Ninja. These are all must-watch movies if you've not seen them. Totally fun, totally wild, and really helps understand the mystique of the ninja and its importance in our culture at that time. Now, there was some defictionalization happening here too, right? There wouldn't be a McQuaid Arcade without talking about this concept. And there were two catalogs, mail-order catalogs, that we received throughout the 80s, and they really cemented this ninja lust. And they were East-West Market Exchange and Asian World of Martial Arts. These are ridiculous and incredible artifacts that have page after page of ludicrous weapons that, at the time, pretty much anybody could purchase, including children, apparently. (laughs) I had a a ninja chest, I called it. You remember this, Barney? Weapons. We had throwing stars, nunchucks, of course. I had a makeshift blowgun, small daggers, even some swords. And of course, I had a ninja suit complete with tabai, the shoes. And I believe it was 87 or 88 that I dressed up as a ninja for Halloween. I remember that Halloween very well because I, like every other child in America, was wearing a dumb costume. And here comes Biggs in a fully functional ninja suit. Like, this was not a costume, people. This was like actual lethal ninja gear. I had everything but the skills. The UK was apparently not as enamored with ninjas as we were during the 80s. Because in the UK, the the cartoon was renamed Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Which, you know, it doesn't sound quite as cool, but it's fine. It's not like the cartoon had the turtles being very ninja-like. Unless, of course, historically ninjas did, in fact, fly around in a giant turtle blimp over New York City. I'm going to fact check you on that one. I'll get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) But in this movie, they were at least more like the ninjas that the comics portray them as, right? They stick to the shadows. They're careful not to be seen. In fact, the first time we see Splinter in this movie, the first question he asks them is, were you seen? Like he's stresses the fact that they cannot be seen and not just because they're ninjas and that's what ninjas do, but because they're all monsters, (laughs) right? These are all terrifying mutant animal monsters that the outside world would not understand. The sequels to this movie, again, there are two live action sequels to this movie and they take that whole concept and just throw it out the window along with really everything that makes this first movie so special. So the sequels, there's TMNT 2, The Secret of the Ooze, and TMNT 3. The second one is exactly the kind of silly, goofy, non-violent kids movie everyone expected this movie to be. It's fine. It's fun. I'm sure kids love it. The third one is a disaster. Like, it's terrible. I, I don't know if you remember this, but back in 1993, we walked out of the theater during that movie. And we, that same year, we sat through Super Mario Brothers, the movie. <laughs> So we were pretty easily entertained back then. 
that's um that's a really important list. There's only a handful of movies we've ever actually walked out on, so that's uh that's something. Yeah, there's definitely not many. But back to this movie. Uh, in this movie, the Ninja Turtles go up against an evil group of ninjas, the Foot Clan, led by the Shredder, an evil ninja master, who wears this really cool bladed armor, and he is recruiting wayward teens into the Foot Clan, and they're behind a crime wave that's hitting New York City. The movie opens with this funny montage of teenagers committing, like, ninja-assisted crime. We see teens picking pockets and handing the wallets off to ninjas. We see them bringing stolen electronics to ninjas who are loading everything into a van. And we get a voiceover kind of describing the whole situation by April O'Neil, TV news reporter, who's played in this movie by Judith Hogue, just in this one, not uh, either of the two sequels. And this is definitely the version of April from the cartoon. Not the comic books. She doesn't wear her trademark yellow jumpsuit in this movie. I guess they tried it, and it just looks absurd on a real human being. But at the first time we see April in this movie, she's wearing a bright yellow raincoat, which is obviously a cute little nod to it. While she was filming this, Judith Hogue was also filming a movie called Cadillac Man with Robin Williams, and she tells this great story about how she was rushing back and forth between the two jobs, and one day Robin Williams asked her, like, hey, what else are you doing? What, where, where are you running off to all the time? And she was super embarrassed, but she admitted to him that she was in this goofy movie called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he flipped out because he knew TMNT and loved it. He was like, oh my God, are you April O'Neil? And showed her his comic books and stuff. So cool. Such a great Robin Williams story. That is so cool. And I feel like we've known that Robin Williams was a big video game fan and loved comics and movies and stuff. And in fact, named his daughter Zelda after the video game franchise that is beloved by both of us. The other big character in the movie is Casey Jones, a vigilante who wears a hockey mask and uses sports equipment like baseball bats and golf clubs as weapons. We meet him when Raphael stops him from like murdering a couple of purse-snatching teenagers with a big hockey stick. He's one of my favorite characters, and he is played so well here by Elias Coteas. As you know, Biggs, I have a lot of uh, like movie memorabilia and stuff in my office. And one of the things I have is a, is a replica of Casey Jones' mask from the movie. And I was on a Zoom call the other day, a meeting for work, and... Somebody on the call kept trying to talk to me about hockey, kept trying to like engage with me about hockey, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized on the wall behind me, they could see what appears to be a hockey goalie mask. And I had to explain to this person, oh, no, that's not sports equipment. That is a toy from a children's movie that I have hanging in my very professional office. So Casey, uh, Casey was conceived as like a parody of comic book vigilantes, Kevin Eastman said, I had this idea. It was kind of a parody of all these vigilante characters that were in comics. You have the classics like Batman and Daredevil and all these characters where something tragic happens in their past that helped them choose the path to go out and fight crime on their own. And I thought it was really funny if we had a character who was inspired to do the same, but just from watching too much bad TV, like TJ, TJ Hooker, and the A-Team and all that stuff. <laughs> that is awesome. And the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book was created to be a parody, in a way, of Marvel's Daredevil series. Or at least it was sort of inspired by it, right? The villains were a ripoff of The Hand, 
Uh, so these were, of course, are called the foot, but they were called the hand in, in Daredevil. Their master had a wood-like name, Stick, Master Stick versus Master Splinter here. And apparently it was the same chemical that blinded Matt Murdock and gave him his powers as Daredevil that uh, was the compound that mutated the baby turtles. Over time, the comic developed its own thing with its own complex stories. But I love that they share a little bit of that same genesis. I love that, the Daredevil TMNT connection. So... April O'Neil figures out that the crime wave hitting the city is reminiscent of, quote, a secret band of ninja thieves who once operated in Japan. And she's it just reminded her of that offhand. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, wait a minute. <laughs> she's spreading the word on the news and Shredder sends some ninjas after her to give her a warning. To stop talking about them. And we get one of several moments where you're like, Wait, this is supposed to be like a kid's movie, right? Because <laughs> April gets like slapped around and knocked out with like a punch to the face by ninjas. It's kind of intense. Raphael shows up and saves her and brings her back with him to the turtles hideout in the sewer. And that's where she meets the turtles and she meets Splinter. We get their origin story in a really cute narrated flashback scene with little animatronic baby turtles eating pizza and a little Splinter in his cage doing all the the martial arts moves along with his master. It's a lot of fun. It looks great. And it's one of the many scenes that are really just beautifully recreated almost exactly from the comic book. I mean, that scene in particular, right? That is just such, such Jim Henson in terms of the detail and the beauty and the mastery of that. That's not a half-ass puppetry. That was the full deal. Yeah. So these puppets, as well as the turtle suits, the costumes, were created by Jim Henson and his Creature Shop, and I think it is safe to say that this movie could not have happened without them. Nobody else could have pulled this off. The suits were revolutionary. They had radio-controlled animatronics in the faces of the turtles, and these things were apparently just a nightmare to wear. They were 70 pounds and hot. And because they couldn't actually afford to shoot most of this movie in New York City, a lot of it was shot in North Carolina in the summer. Oh my gosh. So... Yeah, and the actors were apparently, like, trapped in these suits, kind of, because it took so long to even just get one of the heads off that they couldn't even get just a breath of fresh air in between takes. They had to just sit there and bake in these things. And I guess they shot near an airport in Wilmington, and the radio-controlled faces on the suits would get hit with the signals from the control tower and just go nuts, just start freaking out <laughs> during filming. They, the mouths would go all crazy, the eyes would roll back in the heads, all of a sudden... One of the turtles would just, like, start talking or something, and they would have to, to wait to continue shooting. Stand by, Raphael's having a short seizure. Apparently, Jim Henson was apprehensive about the project, the tone of it, the violence, but he agreed to do it. And the cost of the suits was huge. Working with Henson would double what they had estimated the budget for the entire movie was going to be. But they ended up being absolutely worth every penny. Again, from TheRinger.com, Kevin Eastman talks about the first time he saw the suits in action. We went down to the set in Wilmington where they started shooting in July of 89. This hot, sweaty North Carolina location. Walking through the maze of the back lot, getting to where they were doing a night shoot, we come around the corner of New York City, lit up in all its grandeur, and we see all the actors fully dressed in the suits. That's the first time we'd seen them live and up close and in person. It was just jaw-droppingly mind-blowing. Holy shit, you guys did it. You pulled it off. Yes. Brian Henson says, Every day we thought, what we're doing is impossible. You can't have a bunch of animatronic turtles with people inside the costumes fighting in a burning building and flying through windows and doing backflips and going down manhole covers. 
their work, what they did with these suits is just amazing. And look at how well this movie has aged. This 30-plus-year-old movie now compared to the reboot they did a few years ago, 2014, 2015, that used all CGI. Now, I always thought that movie looked pretty terrible design-wise, but even just technically speaking, I feel like that CGI already looks kind of dated. And that's just from less than 10 years ago. Well, we talk about this a lot. Practical effects, they take a tremendous amount of energy. They take so much artistic skill and often a gigantic budget as we saw here. But they really stand the test of time. When you do it with practical effects, you avoid all of the crazy uncanny valley stuff and all of the changing technology trends. But it is really tough. And I think that's a testament to this movie. And even some of the older movies we talk about that have the Harryhausen type stop motion animation, they hold up in a better way, I think, than than other approaches to this. Those early CGI movies are a disaster. But golly, I mean, what they pulled off here is really really a masterpiece it absolutely was and yet for some reason i'm guessing it was budgetary they went with a totally different effects company for tmnt3 the third movie and the turtle suits and splinter look terrible like the turtles might might look okay if you saw them at like a theme park or something but you see the little mesh cutouts for the for the person's eyes are yeah. looking through like at disney <laughs> yeah they might honestly they might as well because they're so bad compared to the henson work They stink, just like the rest of the movie. And Splinter looks like sub-Chuck E. Cheese quality. Like, he looks gross. Like, he's just awful. All of their expressiveness is gone, and they all move like robots. So this discussion of the turtle suits is a great segue into a new segment on our show, where we each pick a scene to discuss from a movie. Uh, It could be a scene that we loved, a scene that we hated, Whatever. These suits had two important jobs, right? They had to, number one, allow martial artists and stuntmen to to deliver all of the great action we see in this movie. And number two, they had to be expressive enough to make the Turtles and Splinter feel like real characters. And it's cool. The scenes we each chose kind of speak to one of those two important roles that Henson's work played here in the movie. Let's start with you, Biggs, and sort of the action side of things. My favorite scene in the movie is the massive fight scene in April's apartment, and it really showcases the magic of having real talented martial artists in suits fighting rather than CGI or even traditional animation. You know, of course, Legend of Korra, I love it, and the Avatar The Last Airbender, they do so much great animation, but this is the next level. I mean, you really get to appreciate the martial artist skill. And of course, the fight choreography is excellent as well. It's fun, it's dynamic, there's fast moving scenes interspersed with really funny bits. And I love that you can see this all on display. This was actually led by none other than Pat E. Johnson, the ninth degree black belt in the American art of Tang Su Do, and the president of the National Tang Su Do Congress, originally created by Chuck Norris in 1973. We've talked about him before because he's famous for his work in 1984's The Karate Kid series, where he also had a cameo as the All-Valley Karate Tournament head referee. So specifically with this battle scene, you know, cinema, like from a cinematography aspect, it's beautiful. It's actually fairly dark, but it's, you know, kind of a high contrast darkness. You're kind of in this interior space and there's a multi-level set. So as they're fighting, the the Foot Clan is using these battle axes to chop at the turtles and they keep missing and they're chopping a hole in the floor. And at one point, the entire floor drops down. So the entire fight then goes 
down a whole level into this lower level of, you know, of her apartment. Now, now they're kind of in the store below and it's just incredible. You get this scene change during the fight. And when you put it all together, it really is amazing, especially when you imagine they're doing these in these 70 pound costumes. Uh, and all the fight scenes I, I read were done in relative slower action. They kind of did it in slow time. And then, they filmed them at a higher speed so they could actually play it back a little faster to make it look like normal action movements because it was just so hard to be precise and careful and do all these crazy things in those suits. That really is such a fun fight scene. There are so many good ones in this movie. There's the big fight Raphael has on the rooftop right before this where he's fighting all the Foot Clan ninjas by himself. There's the final fight against Shredder, which is great. The scene I picked is one that gets me a little emotional every time I watch it. And the fact that I'm saying that about a scene starring four guys in rubber turtle suits and a, and a rat puppet, <laughs> it says a lot about just how incredible Henson's work was on this movie. Or it says something a little bit disturbing about you, but we'll let the listeners decide. I'm going, I'm going with my thing. It sounds better. <laughs> so to set the scene, Splinter has been captured by the Foot Clan and the turtles don't know if he's alive or dead. And they're all meditating around a fire, a campfire. They're outside the city at this point in the story. And they make contact with Splinter, who is bloodied and beaten. He's chained up in the Foot Clan's lair. They make mental contact with him, and the fire begins to grow and crackle, and it takes on this blue sort of color. And Splinter appears to them in spirit form out of the fire. He looks like Obi-Wan does when he appears to Luke. This scene actually has kind of some Star Wars vibes to it. He tells them all how proud he is of them, of what they've just accomplished, the way they were able to just come together and connect to each other and to him to reach out in this this spiritual, mystical, new kind of level. And then, because he thinks he's going to die, right? He is in really bad shape at this point. He delivers what he believes will be a final message to his kids. Together, there is nothing your four minds cannot accomplish. Help each other, draw upon one another, and always remember the true force that binds you. The same as that which brought me here tonight. That which I gladly return with my final words. I love you all. My sons. Splinter fades away and the fire dies down and the music kind of swells. And it's not just the message, but the the turtle's reaction to it that we now see that gets me. They are all so expressive and you can so really clearly see and read the full range of emotions on their faces. And Splinter is just an amazing puppet. He's a great character, right? He's a very... Yoda-like character, his role in the story. Yes, yes. And the puppet is incredible. I believe it took three puppeteers to work him. And because he's so believable. Again, just like Yoda, the puppet. Like, he's so expressive and has played so well that you are affected when he's telling his sons he loves them for the last time. Just like you cry when this dumb green puppet with big ears dies in Return of the Jedi. Every time. Every time. And it's no surprise that these two puppets are both fantastic because they definitely share a lot of puppet DNA, right? Henson created one, Frank Oz created the other. Anyway, that's my scene, and there's just none of this 
good stuff in the sequels. None of this little bit of emotional weight that we get here. As I said earlier, the second movie, it's it's fine. It's fun. It's it's exactly the kind of goofy, cartoony thing people expected this movie to be. The violence is toned way down. The turtles don't even really use their weapons. It's all very sanitized. In fact, they even managed to sanitize the ending of this movie retroactively. So this movie's big climax is a great, really great rooftop fight between the turtles and Shredder. And the turtles defeat him with Splinter's help. And he ends up falling off the building into the open back of a garbage truck. Now, this guy's done, right? He's clearly done. He just fell off the building. Could be crippled for life, for all we know. (laughs) They could just hang back and wait till the cops show up and arrest Shredder. But instead, Casey Jones walks up to the garbage truck and goes, oops, and pulls, pulls the lever, turning on the compactor crushing Shredder to death. We see his helmet get crunched. And in the second movie, towards the beginning, they're talking about Shredder and how they defeated him. And they mention the fact that he fell off the building. They uh, they leave out the part where he was murdered with a, a municipal vehicle by a psycho in a hockey mask. <laughs> there was actually, there was a lot of backlash to Casey Jones specifically. He was violent. His mask scared kids. Needless to say, He was not in TMNT 2. But I will say this about that movie. What it lacked in Casey Jones, it more than made up for in Vanilla Ice. (laughs) He does the the ninja rap in the club, the dance scene in this movie. Go turtles, go turtles, go. Go turtles, go turtles, go. That's the the big scene everyone (laughs) remembers from this movie. And they actually play that song a lot on the kids' satellite radio station. My kids love it. But I think the rap song we got on this movie's soundtrack... Turtle Power, way better. Let's talk about the soundtrack. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, interestingly, unlike a lot of our favorite films that often have this dual aspect of their music, they'll have an incredible score and an amazing soundtrack. This one's pretty much all soundtrack, but it is fantastic. I think I wore out the cassette tape on this one because it was so good. It was like the best thing to play. And it's it's one of those true albums. I mean, this is kind of is, speaks to how weird we are, but this is one of the albums, you know, people talk about like the Pink Floyd album. I listened to the Beatles. This was the album that I listened to over and over and over from start to finish, you know, and it's my kind of music. So you're saying that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles soundtrack is your The Wall. <laughs> yes, Exactly. <laughs> But it really does kind of seem like it's designed to be really listened to from start to finish as an album. It starts out with MC Hammer's bumping This Is What We Do. This is like my favorite workout song, even to this day. It was incredible. The Dance Hall Ready Spin That Wheel by High Tech 3. And then there's even like a soulful song called Family by Riff. It's just from start to finish, it's stellar. And it culminates, of course, in Turtle Power by Partners in Crime which is actually incredibly catchy and played over the end credits. It's a shame, though. You can't actually get it on any of the modern streaming services, Apple, Amazon, or Spotify. So I recommend punching it into YouTube and just letting it play to be transported back to 1990 in its full glory. There are a couple of really good instrumental pieces on the album. There's the theme, the sort of Turtles theme, which is cute. And there's a really great piece called Shredder's Suite that we hear a lot through the movie. It's really heavy on percussion, There's some really cool guitar work, and it's very dynamic. I was actually surprised to learn that this is just one song, one piece of music, because it changes so much. And because it does, it's able to fit so many different moments of the movie so well.
This movie was a big gamble, right? Releasing something with this kind of tone based on what most people just knew as a silly kids cartoon property. But that gamble definitely paid off because this movie went on to make so much money that it became the highest grossing independent film of all time. New Line Cinema tried to recreate its success with the sequel that hit theaters the following year, but it didn't do as well. And I have to believe that has to do at least in part with the fact that they played it so safe with the sequel. As Lloyd Bradley of Empire Magazine put it, TMNT 2 lacked the darkness and subtlety that made the first film so good and so adult. Since 1990, we've gotten so many sequels and reboots and reimaginings of the Ninja Turtles. Some good, some not so good, as we've pointed out. But it's this version of the Turtles from this original movie that will always be near and dear to our hearts. In his not-exactly-glowing review of this movie from 1990, Roger Ebert says that it is probably the best possible Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And here at McQuaid Arcade, we agree. On the half shell, they're the heroes for. In this day and age, who could ask for more? The crime wave is high with muggings mysterious. All police and detectives are furious because they can't find the source. Of this lethally evil force... This is serious, so give me a quarter. I was a witness. Get me a reporter. Call April O'Neil. In on this case, eh? You better hurry up. There's no time to waste. We need help like quick on the double. Have pity on the city. Man, it's in trouble. We need heroes like the Lone Ranger when Tonto came pronto, when there was danger. They didn't say we'd be there in half an hour, because they displayed turtle power. And on that note, stay limber.